Hello, all, and welcome to the Quality of Being podcast. I'm your host, Jacob Ferris. Today, my guest is Marley Pfeiffer, who is a personal friend of mine and someone I look up to. Marley is an artist, a communicator, and educator who is passionate about sharing ways of perceiving that are helpful to others. He uses journaling and nature journaling to improve self-awareness, learn, and deepen his experience of life. The focus of this podcast is not to talk too much about what the person does or has achieved, but more about their experiences, how they create a life that is fulfilling and purposeful, and more of the behind-the-scenes perspective on what it means to them to be. In our culture, we tend to value external measures of success, such as fame, wealth, and status, but I'm more curious about creating a life that is more meaningful and purposeful and cultivating that feeling from within. So then, what does that actually feel like and look like? And what do our outward actions look like when we're living from that place rather than solely chasing an external goal? My wide-ranging conversation with Marley takes a little while to get going, but I encourage you to stick with it because once we get into the juicy stuff, there are some great insights and wisdom there. I have links in the notes to many of the things we talk about and, of course, to where you can learn more about Marley and what he's up to. I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. So, I guess my first question is, what does work mean to you? (laughs) Wow, that's a really good question. Um, It's interesting because I noticed my first my first uh, impulse is to go on a rant about what how work is defined in our society today mm-hmm. and how messed up I think that is. But I think work used to sound like a bad word to me, maybe up until I was a few years after college probably, but now I actually really like that word. Mm-hmm. And I think that... Um, One of the things that influenced my idea about work was um, reading this book called Zen and the Art of Making a Living, and it's the kind of book that I wish I had been exposed to in high school, and in high school at the um, career fair, um, the career fair at my high school in San Diego was the Navy, the Army, the Marines firefighters, the police, and like maybe like two things that were not um, military or police. And my, uh, we had a uh, career counselors, I think, and they told me not to like go to community college or to travel after high school. And I wish they had showed me this book or something like that. That's what I would do if I were to go counsel high school kids or even college kids. But in that book, it talks about the, um, and I I can't, I don't know if I'm going to remember the Japanese term, but there's a, um, maybe it's just do, but it's like the doing of something. And um, I think it's a suffix like Aikido, Mm. Zendo, whatever. But um, it just like their perspective in Japan on work being something that even if you're sweeping floors or cleaning toilets, you put, you make it like a work of art basically. And so uh, partly because of that book and then just partly over time realizing that the most important thing that I wanted to do was to turn um, the the things that I wanted to do into my main economic engine instead of keeping those two things separate. So for me, 
work is can describe a lot of different things, but I like to use the term life's work to talk about the work that I do for that gives me like meaning in life. And over the last four or five years, it's started to finally get to a point where I'm almost doing no money work, like just work that is just for the money. Um, and even though I still do some work for money, that's slightly less in alignment with what I really want to be doing. It all falls under that umbrella now. And, um, so I think work is, is I can't give like one succinct definition, but for me, it's, it is sort of the most important thing. And I like to use the expression, like I said, life's work to describe that overall sort of mission in life and purpose and make, and, and ideally that should also be your, your main economic engine. I, I definitely do not subscribe to the whole like deferred enjoyment um, like retirement concept. And I really think that doing a bunch of work to make money now so that at some point on the weekend or when you retire, you can spend that money and do the things you want to do. I really think that's a problematic assumption that a lot of things in our culture are based on. Um, yeah, so that would be that. That's pretty much what I think about work. Hmm. Yeah, cool. I feel like uh, my um, career counselor. We didn't. We, I don't think we even have it at a career fair, but it's unfortunate. I feel like a lot of people's career counsel yeah. in high school is so um, skewed to to one thing or another. Yeah. And there's not like. I mean, I look back wishing I had more. Um, somebody had said like, you don't have to go to college, or right. even if you do, you could. There's these options to like learn a skill or a trade because that's yeah. what I ended up like after college. Being like, man, I wish I actually had a skill. Yeah. It's <laughs> <laughs> you know? like, you know, you learn things in school, but, you know, I wanted something like actionable that I could actually, yeah. you know, fall back on or take pleasure in, in doing. Yeah. Um, it's unfortunate. I mean, I, I hope uh, certainly, you know, want to guide the younger folks and, and yeah. show them there's other options and um, you don't have to follow the formula anymore. Yeah. Um, Especially since the the ins- the educational institutions that we have right now were the product of an economic system that is not going to exist in the future. And right. so a lot of the, you know, kids who are in high school right now, the jobs they're going to have, we don't even have names for them yet because the way that things are changing. And so I think that they need to be prepared in a totally different way like i think the educational system's gonna be not functional like really soon Mm -hmm. um yeah yeah i think to go back to the definition of work i think for a while actually after um i think at some part of me in high school and in college understood that there was something about the concept of work or the concept of um the way work was defined in our culture that didn't align with my values. And so I think that my first attempt was to just 
reject it out of hand. And I also really had, especially in college, developed a lot of ideas about the world going in bad directions or industrial society not being able to continue the way it was continuing. So I think that I started to, I think I went, I overreacted in some ways and was like, the only work that matters is like growing food and knowing how to like live off the land. And so I really looked to the past and how people lived in the past. And I sort of had this romantic vision of like going back to the land or being like a um, campesino or something. And that's actually what I tried to put into practice after college. Um, And so I had no, like at that time I was not thinking anything about like monetization or um, even really education or ways that I could, you know, like, like I didn't think writing a book or doing anything like that would be useful because I thought all of those systems were basically one, not worth, being a part of and two not going to be lasting very much longer into the future and that was it probably in retrospect was a disservice to me in a lot of ways that sort of worldview but I think that I did build a lot of skills and develop a lot of experience that has been useful and like where I'm at now is really different from where I was then and I would probably the if, if, if the past Marley came to, to now, it would, they would probably be very like judgmental of me (laughs) and some of the compromises that I've made. But in other ways, I think that I've found more of a way to, to work within the system. And I think that our current economic system actually allows for a lot of opportunity for people that are doing different things and for monetizing basically anything and for education and and yeah so now I kind of have a more optimistic view of it and so I think my my perspective on work has definitely um changed I would say yeah well I'm curious then like uh what at what point did you did your path kind of like start to take you where you are now, like where? Hmm. Okay. So basically going back further first, like I remember reading, um, no logo by Naomi Naomi Klein Mm -hmm. and just like going through a period where I was just like, capitalism was like the worst, you know? And I did go to, um, I did do go to some like political demonstrations and stuff like that when I was in high school and, um, my family is pretty active politically and has been historically. Like my mom was a black Panther and my brother does a lot of community organizing and stuff like that. And it was during the time when, um, George W. Bush was president and, uh, I remember that just being so like I was basically coming of age at a time when we had that presidency and um, 9-11 happened when I was um, a junior or a senior in high school. And so there was a lot of stuff happening in the world that was making me like think like our country is like really bad and the way that we're propping up like our whole lifestyle is based on creating disruption in other countries and um, unfair extraction of resources. And I remember 
my senior year in high school, I had a quote on my um, door that was from some Brazilian prime minister that said something like, um, if the way of life in the industrialized countries cannot be shared by everybody on the planet, then it is an inherently unethical way of life. And that's a pretty heavy thing to be thinking about when you're like 16 or 17. But basically, I mean, I think that's still true, which um, is crazy to think about. But just the idea that like for for me to live the way that I did in suburban San Diego means that some a lot of people in the rest of the world cannot even aspire to live. It's not it's not materially possible for everybody in the world to live that way. Um and so then going into college, I studied cultural anthropology and was really influenced by sustainable agriculture and, and the um, environmental studies department and the um, student environmental center and education for sustainable living program. And then at the same time, my dad, who had moved to Costa Rica in the early 90s, was getting like really into um, peak oil stuff hmm. and always sending me, he's always <laughs> been very pessimistic, but as he, once he got internet connection down there in Costa Rica, he spent a lot of time <laughs> on online and was like reading all this like peak oil and climate change stuff and sending it to me. And that definitely had a really strong influence um, because he had this sort of like apocalyptic worldview. And I realized that that, from the logical part of my brain, all of that stuff made sense. And he wasn't really on the conspiracy theory side of the spectrum, but just like pretty science-based um, limits to growth um, concepts. And when you're, you know, in your early 20s, you're really idealistic. And so all of that, like just, and, and Bush was president for his second term at that time. And uh, it just made me think, um, you know, that the only, like when I thought about things logically and I've always at that, up to that point, I always made decisions like in a very rational way, or I thought where I would, um, you know, think about it and then try to make the most rational decision. And when I thought about the, the environment and the context of where I was living and how I was living, the only like ethical choice I thought was to, um, leave the country and so I'm not like paying taxes to support this whole system that I don't believe in and to try to like um, grow as much as my f of my food as possible and just live in a um, uh, self-sufficient and most sustainable way possible so I basically moved to Costa Rica and for about two years I tried to do that and I wasn't real I wasn't making any money um, I didn't have a car or a computer and I built like a cabin with no electricity or running water. And I tried to like grow as much of my food. And I mean, I learned a lot and I learned, I, I didn't take for granted, like boiling water for <laughs> coffee in the morning. It's like, that's a big process, yeah. you know, starting a fire and when you're living by yourself. And so I was definitely idealistic. And what I didn't take into consideration was the, um, emotional and social aspects of what I was trying to do. So I was basically um, trying to do a bunch of stuff that no humans have really done, have been able to do by themselves. It's always been done with groups of people. And mm -hmm. so um, 
it ended up not being personally sustainable and uh, I was getting like really depressed and stuff like that. And so I ended up, so the point where it sort of turned the, the big turn I think was, um, I had to go back to California after being in Costa Rica for like a lot longer than my visa allowed because I would go back and forth to Nicaragua to maintain my visa, tourist visa. And I was working on getting residency in Costa Rica um, and was doing all the legal stuff for that. I went back to California after like a year of not being there to get some paperwork and I had to go to like LA and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and I visited, I visited my mom in San Diego and her, um, she t- teaches at a community college in San Diego and one of her colleagues was teaching a Latin American studies class and asked me to come talk about my, um, my thesis, which I had done on traditional agriculture in Southern Mexico, Mayan agriculture and, um, the connection between that and free trade. And so I went to this class and I gave a talk at this college and, um, it was just like, I've noticed a feeling inside of myself being on a college campus again and talking to a bunch of students. It was like really energizing. And, um, even though I was in San Diego, I realized that that feeling was something that was missing in my life Hmm. in Costa Rica, even though I was doing some education stuff in Costa Rica. Um, and then the last thing, like before I left the, that community college campus and before I went back to Costa Rica is I heard that they were going to start a community garden, uh, an urban farm on that campus. And so that was the last thing I heard. I said bye to my mom and all that and went back to Costa Rica. And like, I think a couple months later, I just had this, it was the first time, like, I think that I made a decision from my heart instead of from my intellect. And, um, I was just like, I think I was sitting up at the computer, at my dad's computer, um, in Costa Rica. And I somehow was just like, I'm good. I'm just going to, I'm going to go back. Like I heard, I had gotten like an email about the urban farm starting up. And so I just decided, I basically kind of abandoned, um, a lot of stuff in Costa Rica and just moved back to San Diego and started working at this community garden. I think that was sort of the first, the real first, um, switch in my, um, in that sort of trajectory. And then there's been a, there's been multiple, um, ones since then. Um, cause I still was like on a super strict diet hmm. and trying to be like super sustainable. Like I, when I first moved back to San Diego, cause in Costa Rica, I wouldn't eat anything that I absolutely would not eat anything that was from outside of the country. And then I tried to keep everything either that I grew or was produced in the watershed where I lived. Um, and when I moved back to San Diego, some of my friends from Costa Rica were like, are you still getting food from the Cuenca, like from the watershed <laughs> down in Costa Rica? Cause they didn't understand like that, that didn't make sense didn't at all. <laughs> <laughs> and so I started trying to eat, like, I remember I didn't eat any, um, I, I only ate rice was like the only grain that I ate because it was really hard then to source grains, staples from California. I just sort of made a, um, California was sort of like an arbitrary, luckily California produces so much food, but 
it was like an arbitrary limit, like ultimate limit. Like I wouldn't eat anything from outside of California. And then I tried to eat stuff mostly from, um, my County, but, um, so I, I was still, and I didn't drive, so I was still pretty extreme, but mm-hmm. that was like the first major um, shift, I would say. That was a monumental one. And then since then, they've been sort of like smaller ones. What was the, um, when you made that decision to move back, when it was sort of like a, like follow your gut, like yeah. what, what can you, do you think you could describe like the difference between making this decision that like really, you know, kind of got to you in yeah. that way versus like, oh, I'm going to do this thing and sort of plan out good question linearly. I think um yeah that's a good question I think the ma- the first thing that comes to my mind is it was sort of fa- it felt fast like it was almost like from one minute to the next I decided whereas mm-hmm. like these other decisions it would be like I would be journaling and I would have like big pieces of paper with like different pros and cons and I would be like thinking about stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, and, um, this one, it was like, and part of me almost felt like maybe this is just when I recall the memory and sort of like reflect on it. But I think part of me almost felt like this sort of like guilty pleasure in a way of like, or like this irresponsibleness of it, but in like a good way, sort of like when you, uh, when you like have a responsibility that you shed and all of a sudden you feel like really light, Mm -hmm. it felt like I was doing something like that, like sort of, sort of like guilty, but at the same time, like liberating. Um, Mm -hmm. and so that, yeah, I think that compared to my other, the other decision making process that like led me down there felt like more, um, just sort of like, Oh, I'm doing, I'm like supposed to do this. And like, I'm kind of like planning and, all rational about it right I mean you know that's that's really cool I but I also feel like you know hearing your story like you know not to get too philosophical but it's like you know at some point in your life you might not have the tools to to access that part of yourself right so you followed what you knew and what was interesting to you at the time and then later you had this opportunity you know you went through the process and tried it out and were like not really working out the way that I thought and then you know, an opportunity came up and you were available to it. Yeah. Um, and, uh, could, could listen to that part of yourself. Yeah. So it's like, I mean, I appreciate hearing that, that you had that sort of realization and that you could make that move. But at the same time, it's like also not to be critical of yourself when you're not, when you're not getting that, like, yeah, you you know, it doesn't work also to kind of like, continually search for this gut feeling that right. you're not getting it's like sometimes you know using both are yeah are helpful but yeah yeah i don't know i just like to to clarify that yeah because like sometimes uh you know you you have to work with what you have yeah right? yeah um so uh you know fast forward now like yeah you know uh how do you define success? Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, also, you know, how does money play into that right. as well? Okay. So I feel like I haven't put enough thought into how I, I think I use that, throw that word around success without, um, putting enough without defining it. Mm-hmm. Um, in my work, I haven't really 
defined it and in my you know like journaling and and introspection and stuff I haven't put much work into um trying to define it and I don't use it a ton it's not really that maybe it's not really like the main metric or that I use or the the term that I use for for measuring myself or other people but um so in some ways this is my like how I explain it now is just going to be kind of more raw but um I think the most important thing, and there's like a Mary Oliver quote that I really like that is like, um, the most regretful people are those people that felt something calling and then didn't do it. Mm. And so I think for me, successful success will be defined when I'm on my deathbed and like, Mm. I look back and I'm like, Oh yeah. Okay. That was good. Mm -hmm. You know, but if, if I'm on or not just me, but for other people, I think a really good metric of success is like when you are dying, how do you feel when you look back at your life? Like, did you do what you wanted to do or do you have like a ton of things that you wish you had done or hadn't done? So I think that that way of looking at it is super important. And then um, I think that also just like when you look at how you spent the majority of when the majority of your time, like in the moment. So that one is sort of like reflecting and sort of summarizing your whole life trajectory. But then like in life, like what, what do we do the most? Like, what do we spend the most time doing? And is that something that we want to be doing? And so this kind of goes back to the whole work thing is that if I spend five days of the week doing something that I don't want to be doing, so that I can do what I want to do two days, that is not success. Even if I were getting a ton of money Mm -hmm. and I could really go crazy on the weekends and maybe have like one super epic vacation a year or whatever, that would not be successful to me if those five days a week are doing something I don't want to be doing. And so I think for me, success is defined by how close you can make your, how, how, close you can make your work line up with what you want to be doing and have it be meaningful in a way and have sort of like this story to it that when it's time when you're old and it's time for you to die you can look back and be like yeah that made sense and like I can see like there was meaning um and going to money like I think for a long time just in alignment with, I think I threw the baby out with the bathwater um, when I was like realizing that, you know, in a lot of ways, like capitalism and industrial society were super fucked up. I think that I just, just wanted to get rid of that. It was hard for me to see how you could have some of that and not have all of it. And I felt like it was like very tempting and you could get on the slippery slope and like, Next thing you know, you know, like, okay, you get a car and you start driving. Next thing you know, you're driving everywhere and burning tons of gas and you're buying like all this like shitty food and supporting all the things that you don't want to be supporting. So I think I, for a long time, really had this idea, like it's a slippery slope. And once you get started. And so I think that like making money and even just be and paying taxes to like this whole system that I think is is very problematic and caused a lot of suffering in the world. I felt like all of that was tainted. And so, um, I think 
coming to, um, coming to like some better understanding of money, I think is important for a lot of people and is really difficult. And for me, um, I think I'm finally getting to a place where, um, like, I don't really think about it that much. Like I mainly am trying to just focus on doing the work and like building up a body of work and producing value and hoping that it will start turning into something that can be monetized. And it has been more and more in the last few years. And, um, so I'm really glad for that. Um, and I go back and forth between being like right now, this fall is really, is a little bit difficult for me financially because I had like, um, a lot fewer, um, paycheck paying like regular paycheck paying work. And I was going to be doing a lot more entrepreneurial and teaching classes and stuff like that. And I had about three different classes that I was counting on, um, not fill up with people and get canceled. And so uh, right now I'm really getting to experience like what it's like being in a place where, um, instead of just going and getting a job and counting on a paycheck, I'm, I have the opportunity time wise to, um, it's like, I'm trying to make, make it seem like an opportunity instead of like a scarcity thing. Mm -hmm. So instead of being like, Oh shit, I have no money this fall. This is rough. And I'm trying to be like, okay, now's the time. Like the rubber hits the road. Like I need to, I need to be my own boss. And with the extra time I have, like take advantage of it and try to, um, do as much work as I can building my own business. Um, and then another thing about money that is almost like a whole separate subject is like, um, cause it goes into another thing I'm really interested in is asking for things. And so like asking for money for something that you're making is really hard. And I think for a lot of creatives and entrepreneurs that can be sort of the, um, the weak link because, um, our society has weird ideas about money and asking for money, especially when you start off small, a lot of times your customers are like your friends and family or people that you know well. Mm -hmm. And so asking them for money, like today I taught a nature journaling thing and at a certain point during that outing, I need to pull out the envelope and be like, all right, I ask, I, you know, I there's a suggested $20 donation and it's like, I've, I've been doing this nature journaling club, um, once a month for, I think two years now. And so it's like a muscle. And luckily I started doing this because every month there's going to be one time where I'm with a group of people where I have to ask for money and I know I'm providing value. And it's like, I know that it's worth it, but there's still part of me. that's just like, it's hard asking for money. And now I'm doing this like Patreon thing where I need it. Like this morning I was sending an email to my sister asking for like $2 a month, you know, <laughs> it's like not very much, but it's just like, dude, that took a lot. That was the first thing I did this morning because I've been putting it off, like doing these, um, it's easy to put up a Patreon and just sit there and wait for people to start paying you money, mm -hmm. but to actually make individual asks of people, even though it's like, you know, it's a negligible amount of money for most people, but, um, $2 a month, you know, for a year, it's like nothing. My sister spends that much on like, 
I don't know, her or whatever, <laughs> something, some in 10 some, minutes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so, um, just like realizing that. And I think, um, that's such a skill, um, is being able to ask for money. And then also I do things now where like, I, 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 uh, I, I, um, did a talk. I substituted for John Muir laws at this birding festival and I had to talk to them on the phone and they're, and ask for a certain amount of money for going down there. And so just getting comfortable doing that and in a confident way, oh my gosh, it's like such a skill and Mm -hmm. just being able to realize like things cost money, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, and I want to do more stuff like that. So, um, yeah, I think that kind of covers that's, that could be a whole long thing, but yeah. What is, what is your feedback been from people when you ask them for money or even that conference Uh, that you went to do? Yeah. Is it surprising or like, is there resistance or, you know, how do you experience that? Um, it's a good question, but trying to, trying to imagine into someone else's perspective is always good. But like, is there anything that would suggest like, you know, people are willing or they're resistant, you know, is there anything in their reaction that would, that kind of feeds your To tell you the truth. Okay. So to tell you the truth, um, there's this concept of like, um, and I think it's based pretty strong in neuroscience that you, when you go into a situation, you're, and this is, this is like the, on the most basic level. And then there's more subtle nuances, but your brain goes into either a towards response or an away response. Mm-hmm. So when you go into a situation with a bunch of people who are, um, like a higher status than you, for example, and you, for whatever reason are, it it can trigger, it will trigger an away response. Or if you go into a place where there's like 50 people you don't know staring at you, it automatically triggers this away response in a part of the brain that is faster, has more processing power and is much older and more ingrained than the neocortex where you do like your logical thinking and tell yourself I'm worth it. I'm worth (laughs) it. And so Um, just being aware of that biological part, I think is super important. And so for me, a lot of times I haven't practiced this enough where my neocortex can like override all of that shit. But, um, what I've, what I, to answer your question, like when I've gone into these situations, like when you're in that away response, it actually, it's like tunnel, the metaphor is like tunnel vision because your brain constricts the amount of data coming in and you're Mm -hmm. actually less able to be creative. You're less able to empathize or imagine what other people are thinking. And so I think usually when I'm in those situations, especially like the higher, um, what's the word higher, uh, um, risk situations. Mm -hmm. I think that I, it's hard for me to, I'm kind of in that nervous state where it's hard for me to imagine the other person. But so far, I mean, just from externals, feedback has generally been pretty good. Yeah. Thanks that for, I can remember. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. I mean, one of the reasons why I asked is because as somebody who likes to support friends and even people I don't know and um, on Patreon and, and support cool things that I come across, you know, as somebody who gives to that stuff, um, it's often not difficult, you know, if, as long as it resonates with me, it's not difficult to do that. And, and also be understanding as an, as sort of somebody who's contracting, like someone yeah. in your situation, like understanding of paying for accommodations and paying you for your time and really valuing that. Mm-hmm. But I know also 
from the other side of it, it's hard to imagine yeah. thinking that and thinking that that's what other people are sort of expecting. Because mm-hmm. I think also um, there can be an expectation of people of like, oh, yeah, like you, they might not say anything, but participants in your class may also have an expectation that, yeah, you, of course you're going to ask me for money and yeah. of course I will pay you. Um, but I know kind of coming from that place, if you're not experienced, um, it can be really challenging. Yeah. Like money touches us in a place that's yeah. very vulnerable. Yeah. Like, yeah. You know, that's, that can be really deep. So, yeah. you know, I just appreciate like hearing both sides of, of what yeah. that, that experience. Yeah. Um, so we haven't really talked about it, but you know, I'm interested to get in like what you're working on now, which is, um, nature journaling mm-hmm. and art and watercolor, mm-hmm. um, and making that, your career yeah um would you add to that like yeah so i would what's what what's your vision for that right okay great and um for me i'm a generalist and i've for a long time have really struggled figuring out like what is something to specialize in and I think when I was a little, when I was a little kid, I, I liked drawing and I liked nature and going into like, at some point someone told me like what biology was and it just, that just really shows you how dumb like, and limiting our, our, uh, culture is around like careers and stuff like that. And so it was like, of all, like, oh, you're interested in nature, biology. I mean, talk about, like, a simplification, right? Mm. Like, I didn't know, like, what ecology was or zoology or botany or, you know, there's so many different ways you could go with that. Um, And when I was a kid, like, and this is mostly from external feedback, but some of the adults in my life, like, friends of the family and stuff, just remember, like, going to the San Diego zoo with me when I was a kid. And I would go from being like quiet and introverted to being like, Oh, this is the Bengal tiger and blah, blah, blah. And like, I would basically give tours to, Mm. um, the family of people from out of town that were visiting when we went to San Diego zoo. But like, I never really like realized that was even like, like I could have probably gotten a job at the zoo or like, I didn't really have my family didn't really like push me very hard to do things for long periods of time. So like I didn't do any, I did water polo for like a year. Um, I did surf team, which for like a couple years, but like I never was forced to like learn a musical instrument or like take something and stick with it. So I kind of taught myself grit and, which supposedly you can't do. Um, and so like, that's been a struggle for me, I think. And so I have a lot of self judgment around it. Um, and I actually made a video about this recently, but one of the main things that I've tried to do in the last five years is really dial in on like what, what I can be uniquely world-class at. And that way of thinking about it's mostly just like in the last year, because when I was trying to live like self-sufficiently, none of those quest that question wouldn't have really been valid. It would more be like, well, you have to be a generalist if you're, if you're trying to homestead and, um, Mm -hmm. and translating that into monetization, that's, that's something that I wasn't even thinking about. So if I had to define what I'm doing now, it would be 
definitely within education. Like I love um, communicating ideas to other people and inspiring other people to see the world in new ways. And so I, I consider myself now an artist, but it's taken me a while to comfortably adopt that term. And I also think that I don't know why, but I think in some ways it's a limiting term because I'm not really interested in producing um, pretty pictures. I'm more interested in communicating information and sharing ways of perceiving the world that people need. And so the nature journaling and journaling in general feels like one of, like my Patreon is journaling to save the world is sort of the subtitle on my Patreon. And I basically have tried so hard, like to figure out, like for a while I had a website that was like about fermentation and I taught fermentation. And then I got really into like archery and primitive skills. And I taught classes about that. And I could have, you know, like I had a section on my website that was just about archery. And what I've realized is that those are sort of examples of premature specialization or optimization. And that what I'm actually more interested in is not those specific skills, but the process of learning them and um, seeing the world in a different way or learning about a new thing. And so I think um, now I finally figured out like, that archery is not the specific thing or like doing like bioactive terraria with like reptiles and amphibians is not the specific thing that I I need to focus on. And that's not how I'm not going to change the world through archery. But I think that journaling is like a broad enough. It's kind of like a trick that I use and we'll see how long it works for is like, it's the only umbrella that will fit everything that I want to be able to do underneath it and nature journaling in particular is is awesome because it's really a perspective instead of like it's not really about like watercolor pictures of like flowers or something like that it's about asking questions it's about creating a feedback loop with the world that forces you to to um, follow up on what you're curious about and to engage in this process using the paper as sort of like an external brain basically. And that's one of, there's, there's multiple benefits of journaling, but one of the main ones is that it creates this sort of external brain that allows for you to think on paper and to go back and forth between what you're observing in the world, what's coming through your brain and the paper. And so I really, yeah, the, the, Teaching people about journaling and nature journaling in particular are the things that I think I can be uniquely world-class at. And in addition to teaching people, just doing the practice on my own. So like, I'm really excited, like one of the projects I'm most excited about right now. And I think it's one of the things that I can do that no one else can do is travel to the most biodiverse parts of the planet and endangered biocultural ecosystems and use my nature journaling to communicate information about those stories because a lot of those places within my lifetime those ecosystems those those human nature relationships and some of those species are going to be going extinct and so 
I think that a nature journal provides a very different story about those places than just photos and other ways of recording information. And so I think that that educational piece and that um, it's all kind of education or communication. Um, but I, I think that I'm particularly, I have, so that comp- combines like things that I think um, I was good at since I was a kid and it combines what I enjoy doing and it it's like a Zen diagram intersection between three circles and it's what I, I think I'm good at, what I like to do and what is needed in the world. And then ideally what is needed also means what you can make money doing. And so if all of those, the place where all those things interlap, interlock or overlap mm-hmm. is that is what work should be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cool. Nice. Uh, full circle <laughs> from the first question there. Uh, that's really cool. Um, there's a lot that we skipped over in your life and how you got yeah. there. I mean, I think uh, if anyone goes to your website and checks out your work, you know, drawing has been something that you've done your whole mm-hmm. life and that it's really, you know, you've done these other things like trying to like living in Costa Rica and like gardening and plants and all these mm-hmm. things, but kind of coalescing them all through your consistent practice of, mm-hmm. of drawing over the yeah. years and art and then kind of like making that the fulcrum of yeah. through which you communicate your, your passion about other things. Is that, yeah, kind of I think it's, yeah, in some ways there's definitely been periods where I've stopped, um, journaling, um, or I've stopped drawing. And I think those are probably act as, illuminating as the periods where I was like full on doing it. And so, um, it, despite those periods where I stopped, it has been probably the most consistent through thread. Um, I didn't always draw like the things that I was doing. So for example, when I was like doing lots of, um, the homesteading and gardening, I didn't always use my journal as a, a substrate for interacting with those practices. And I wish that I had, but for the most part, it's been the, the most consistent, the consistent thing. And also just learning, like getting passionate about a new subject and then learning as much as I could about it. Um, Mm -hmm. yeah. And are you saying that you're using journaling to do, to help learn? Yeah, I haven't always done that, but, Uh but even, yeah. So for example, like there was a period in middle school where I was super into fishing and I like subscribe to fishing magazines and like ridiculous stuff you know like I was reading about all kinds of fishing that I was fishing in like a little pond Mm -hmm. in a canyon in San Diego and I was like reading these magazines about like pro fishermen fishing for like salmon in Alaska and stuff like that so it was like when I would get into something I would just like really get interested in like learning as much as I could about that particular thing Mm -hmm. um yeah I feel like I I share that that's something we share in common uh I know both of us tend to know lots of random facts about (laughs) very different things but uh you know maybe uh the visions of grandeur of like oh man I I, you know I'm gonna immerse myself in this thing yeah and learn as much as possible which is exciting and I feed I think it feeds uh, you know, an, an element of personality, yeah. but not necessarily, you know, I always thought like, oh, this is a way for me to get into this thing yeah. and kind of get my feet wet to some, you know, and like yeah. get familiar with the terminology and like 
the gear, if there's gear involved, yeah, yeah. which is always fun. Um, and I think often in my life, it kind of became the thing rather than actually doing the thing. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, it's easy to just like over, over intellectualize or be like, oh, you know, amass this encyclopedic knowledge of stuff rather than actually putting it into practice and yeah. like actually going out and planting stuff or, yeah, yeah. or actually journaling and, and actually yeah. practicing drawing every day. Yeah. Um, I'm curious to hear about like, how do you, um, stay motivated in that, yeah. doing that and like doing it every day and like, um, what, you know, how, do, where does feedback, that positive feedback yeah, come yeah. from for you? What does that look like? Um, yeah, there's a couple things you touched on that I feel like could be like a whole <laughs> podcast episode on like that. I, you said a lot of cool stuff about um that whole idea of like the learning of the new thing being instead of actually the doing of it and that's something that i've i i still don't know the answer to it and like what are the different motivations but that's something i would love to dive into more later so you should write down that's like worth going into more because i think a lot of people have that and i think in some ways it's like a exennial or millennial generational um issue like a lot of people it's, it's, I think in our generation, a lot of people are dealing with that and in the younger generations, and it's probably going to be, um, more, more of a thing in the future, but, um, yeah. At the beginning phase of something, it's like, you can be excited to, yeah. to want to do something, but, um, you know, at what point of doing that thing, do you see like, wow, I'm progressing and that's exciting or people are telling me this is good or like, you know, whatever it is for you. Mm-hmm what feeds you to, to keep doing it. Yeah. Cause you talk about doing, you know, you have your morning practice where you do yeah. journaling every day and yeah. being disciplined about that's not, not always easy. Yeah. You know, so there's a lot of different strategies and I really, I think novelty and learning new things, there's this inherent like dopamine rush that you get from it mm-hmm. that starts at, that's in the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, and so at a certain point that will fade away. And so I think that there's ways, there's ways you can be sort of intellectual about this. And it really, the self-aware, self-awareness is such an important piece of the, all of these practices, because in addition to just learning, like learning how to do watercolor or whatever, whatever the actual task is, you need to learn how yourself works and be paying attention to what's going on for you and it's kind of like training an animal sometimes you know (laughs) it's like are you past the stage where you get the dopamine reward just because it's you're learning a new thing like it's easy to go into a stage where then you just buy stuff Um, like for example with archery a lot of people who do archery they go through a phase where they buy bows new bows and that can take pl- the place of doing the actual archery mm-hmm. or it can be a way to just keep getting that novelty. Um, and so f- over, f- over focusing on the stuff is a problem, but some of the strategies that I use to maintain a practice are, um, one really powerful one is creating some type of accountability with other people. Mm-hmm. So either, either, either figuring out, a partner or a, um, a club that you can practice something with 
that forces you or doesn't necessarily force you, but it just makes you way more likely to do something if you do it with other people. Mm-hmm. That's one thing. Um, that's super helpful and there's all these different ways that can accelerate your learning also and and not just motivate you but speed up your learning so one thing that i've done like with the nature journaling and this is a case where you have to start before you're ready like you should start teaching something when as soon as you can in the learning phase so like i really strongly believe in you know, like you're learning about fermentation, you're really obsessed with fermentation, start teaching fermentation as soon as you can. And that will accelerate your learning more. And it will also create this sort of cycle that keeps you accountable to that practice. And um, so like with nature journaling, I started this uh, nature journaling club in Sonoma County and it forces me at the very least to nature journal once a month for like four hours and usually go to a different place. And if it were just up to me and I told myself I'm going to nature journal once, once a month, I might go and, or I might like end up defer, like changing the, my schedule and being like, well, I, I didn't wash my clothes and do errands yesterday I need to put that into my nature journaling time but since I'm accountable to these other people and I'm actually like in a position of responsibility that forces me to do it so that's one thing and I started doing that I try to start teaching things like seriously like with primitive skills I started I went to my first primitive skills gathering I didn't even know what that was um in like 2012 maybe at Buckeye and I started teaching at primitive skills gatherings like two years later. Um, and with some things it's been even faster and there's definitely downsides to learning something from someone who's not an expert, but I actually think there's more benefits and it also just, it will help you keep up the practice. So that's ways to sort of use other people and accountability. And then there's other things that are real primitive, like, um, just like, you can tie in other sources of dopamine to your practices. So like you can give yourself a reward um, or, okay. So this is where I should talk about habits probably is if you can turn a practice into a habit, it will make it way easier. So motivation is a weird thing and discipline is a weird thing and they both take a lot of energy. They can take a lot of energy, but things that are habits you don't have to, your brain doesn't actually use energy to initiate them. Mm-hmm. And so understanding the habit loop, and there's a book called The Power of Habit by Charles Duhigg or something that's super interesting, but this is this is like everywhere in, in a lot of places now. But um, understanding the habit loop, which is a stimulus, um, an activity, and then a reward, and how to hijack that system can turn a practice into a habit. And so that's kind of like what my morning routine is. And, um, I've adapted my morning routine a lot of different ways. Like even just having a morning routine is a habit. And then the cool thing about that is like in the future, maybe, you know, five years in the future, I might have like a book deadline or whatever. And I need to be writing like, um, three hours a day before going to a different job or something. Well, I already have a morning routine and I could just adapt that morning routine and fit um, three hours of writing in instead of what I'm doing now. 
Mm-hmm. So creating um, habits out of your practices is uh, is is huge because then you don't need to use your prefrontal cortex and your willpower to decide to do it every day. Like if I just if I just say, oh, my goal is to um, draw for an hour every day, but I don't like set a time of day, then every single day at some point I need to think like, oh, am I going to draw now? Oh, am I going to draw now? And I need to like decide and prioritize and mm. deciding and prioritizing use more energy from your brain than like almost anything else. Prioritizing in particular takes a lot of energy. So taking that out of the equation. So you just know like every single day at three o'clock, I make a cup of tea and I draw for an hour. That's the kind of thing where you have that set time of day. And then after a while that will become a habit and it won't take as much energy or discipline to do. And then connecting it to another thing. So like if there's something you already do as a habit, like take a shower, you could connect your practice to that. Like every, every time before I take a shower, after take a shower, I do like five push push-ups or whatever. And then you connect the practice to something that's already habit. Hopefully something that is an enjoyable habit. And if you put the reward after the practice and that's good too, or during, like if you connect journaling with drinking coffee or something like that, or every time you do a workout, you do something at the end, like take a shower or, um, drink a beer or whatever. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, and then let's see other types of motivation. Um, there's a lot of other ways, there's different ways you can motivate for practices and some of them can be bad. Like some of them can be, um, problematic in that they're not sustainable. So anything that requires like external feedback can be a problem because if that feedback, if that external thing is taken away, it can undermine your motivation. So being like totally dependent, for example, on praise for a pro the product or even from your own praise, like if your motivation for drawing is creating pretty pictures, you set yourself up for a situation where, um, if you draw and the picture's not pretty, you're going to be disappointed. And, and that's, that's another thing for creative practices. That is a tech, a specific actionable technique is being in making a, um, commitment around input instead of like an expectation around output. And so some authors say like two crappy pages a day. And so if you set a a goal that is input based instead of output based, um, in the sense that you're going to just type for two pages and, or you're just going to draw for three pages, or you're just going to, um, you're just going to practice music for one hour. All of those are metrics based around like input. Mm-hmm. Um, and output would be like, I'm, I want to make a pretty picture or I want to make beautiful music or I want to, um, you know, write this like really great, um, love scene in my novel or whatever. All of those are like difficult to achieve. Mm-hmm. And so, um, making that's a, like a super useful thing for practices. And those are kind of, um, and then there's all kinds of other ones that will be more individual, but those are some of the like main ones that come to my mind, um, mm-hmm. right now. Yeah. So, um, I, I can speak from my kind of 
musical experience and like learning how to play a song. Yeah. Um, and also like in my progress as getting better, it's like at some point, you know, practice didn't feel so, so hard to get myself to do. And at yeah. some point I cared so much. I liked hearing what I was producing and I liked the feeling of that. I yeah. had enough confidence in playing the piano yeah. that it felt good to play. Yeah. Not just that it sounded good, but like that it felt good to express the yeah. music that I was playing. Um, and so it, like at some point it just switched over so that I didn't have to like force myself to do it. It was something that I was like, I'm committed to learning this yeah. thing and I want to get better. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, uh, but I'm also curious to know, so creating a habit, um, is one thing, but what do you, what do you get out of it? Um, besides it's like, I, we know that, uh, that drawing in, 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 nature journaling is important to you, but yeah. like, what is something else that you're getting out of it? Like, how is it affecting your life? Oh, that's a good question. Now that you, I, I thought of one other thing about the practice is like, there's this really good book called the practicing mind mm -hmm. and my video about how it, that I did about how, um, wanting to be good gets in the way of like yeah. getting better. That's a really great video. It's based <laughs> sort of on that because yeah, in that in that book, that book's amazing. But he, it's very Buddhist. But it basically just talks about how if you can, and it sounds like you did this with um, music, is if you can come to enjoy the practice instead of having the idea of like this this state that you're going to achieve mm -hmm. um, once you're expert, then that's really good. And so like um, even if it's uncomfortable, like I think some people are good at being masochistic in sort of a good way is like mm -hmm. they they begin to enjoy like running or doing push-ups or doing putting themselves in uncomfortable situations that accelerate their learning or practice that's like if you can some people are able to do that sort of reframing and that's really really good and then that way you can also move towards those parts that you need to learn and not just move into the comfort zones of a practice. Mm -hmm. But, um, as far as what do I get out of it? That's a good question. I don't, I haven't really, um, thought about it that way. I mean, I definitely do sometimes like enjoy like looking back at like there is a cumulative effect and like looking at a journal that's just like totally full of drawings and writing and, um, there's no empty pages. Like I do enjoy that every once in a while. Like I try not to get like, make that the only thing that I enjoy because I think it, it can be dangerous, but I do enjoy that. And, um, I do also enjoy the results. Like I notice, um, that I'm getting better, but I also think that can be a, um, a problematic or unsustainable, thing to be too focused on. Mm -hmm. Um, and, um, I also think I get out of it. Like it changes me like nature journaling, for example, I feel like changes the way that I see the world around me and allows me to formulate better questions and remember things better and experience things more deeply. So like a good example would be, <clears throat> I went to, I spent a lot of time in Costa Rica and I went there like every year since I was a little kid. And then I spent like those two years there homesteading. But I went, the last time I went back there was the first time I nature, really nature journaled there. 
and it was like totally different. Um, even places I had been since I was a kid, I would go there with my nature journal and it was like all, it was like going, it was like someone took like a blindfold off of me. And I mean, I was a super observant kid and I was running around in the forest and like catching different animals and all kinds of stuff. Um, but when I was just really nature journaling there, the last time I went, it was just like so much, I saw so much more and I was also doing a lot more tracking animal tracking too so that was a big shift but those two perspectives like if I could say like what I get out of something like my ideal thing that I get out of something is like it feels like I want to be able to like see more or understand more or have like deeper insights and I feel like both nature journaling and journaling in general they're they give me like these um skills or abilities um and if I could, if I could only have like one thing that I get out of those practices, I think that's what it would be is just like, it feels like I, it develops my ability to see and observe and make connections. Hmm. Yeah. Cool. Mm-hmm. Um, so man, I, my mind is going in so many directions. Yeah. It's cool. Um, what do you, um, I guess what is different or is there anything else about the quality of your life yeah. now committed being committed to this practice um, compared to which pra- which practice your your journaling yeah. practice uh-huh. um, that is different uh, to previously in your life before you had kind of really gotten onto that yeah okay um, <clears throat> yeah definitely like I find that um, having like a regular part of my day that's the same every day is just super grounding mm-hmm. and it makes it so I think it can make it so that I'm um, more open to like chaos in other places or more able to operate like flexibly um, and like react to unexpected things more in other parts of my life if I have like a regular routine at some point during my day mm-hmm. so I think that is huge and it also I think gives me like a sort of like a, a peace of mind to having that um, that regular practice every every day um, also just having like I think it's really helped me get more clear and more like confident in having like a direction because in a lot of ways like what I'm trying to do is really there's so much uncertainty and there's not like a clear like 10 step program to what I'm trying to do Mm -hmm. and so there's not like a career path clearly set out for me I'm basically like making it up as I go Mm -hmm. and so having any uh, having like certain things that I do over and over again is really, um, confidence building, I think. And it also, it's definitely helped my, I think a journaling practice in general, even if it's not like when I was a kid and I did journaling, it was not like as regular, it wasn't like an everyday thing or I didn't have like a formula that I followed. And so like, Mm -hmm. I think I only started really journaling when I was a teenager and it was, it was irregular 
and I didn't have as much of a structure. It was more kind of just like what was ha- what was going on for me. And um, uh, it wasn't until like much more recently that I really started, like just in the last couple of years, started making it very regular. And uh, um, it's definitely, I think, but even the way I was doing it when I was a teenager has helped me develop self-awareness, I mm-hmm. think. Um, and it's also helped me, I think part of the confidence comes from like, you can look back and sort of see this like trajectory and be like, okay, this makes sense, you know, instead of just being like, oh fuck, there's so many variables. Like, what am I doing? Like, I'm not, I'm like kind of floundering. It gives you, it gives a sort of like a meaningful trajectory. Mm. And, uh, yeah, those are the main, those are the main things there, I think. So, um, that sounds to me kind of like the elements of a spiritual practice. Yeah. Do you relate to that word at all or does that fit into Good question. Um, well, I definitely, so that's interesting. I think, um, I've definitely gone a a lot of different, I've definitely been interested in spirituality since I was pretty young. Mm -hmm. And I think I read Carlos Castaneda books when I was like, (laughs) Jeez, probably, I mean, maybe like eighth or ninth grade. And so pretty early on, I was interested in non-Western spirituality, non, I should say non-Judeo-Christian spirituality, and also a lot of like shamanism or plant medicine type stuff. And, um, for, for a long time, that kind of, I think, that and also relationship with nature, which is important in a lot of those, uh, in a lot of world um, spiritual practices, um, cross-cultural spiritual practices. And so I think for a long time, that has really, it's almost like I um, always associated spirituality with those things. Mm-hmm. And... Um, in the last like year, I haven't really been like, I've tried at different times in my life to have some sort of like more regularity about like a spiritual practice or like had an idea of like what it should look like. Or like I tried to like, I guess, compartmentalize it with like other parts of my, my life. Like, okay, like, and then like every three months I'll do this and this will be like part of my regular spiritual practice. And it's been hard for me to really do that in the last couple of years. But I think that I've, um, sort of, I've been a little bit, um, less self judgmental about that. Um, and also just realizing like now, as you say it, that some of these other things I do have, ask could be considered like spiritual practices but I've never really thought of my journaling that much as a spiritual practice but I do write about the things that I think of as spiritual practices in my journal so Mm -hmm. the times that I've done different psychedelics I've usually journaled about them or at least tried or done my um, um integration afterwards in my journal so I can definitely see if I look back, I can see those things. Um, and a lot of the like questions that I have before doing a psychedelic experience or the, um, things that I'm hoping to get out of it, I can see 
um, where I put those. Oh, and then I also have in the last um, maybe four years, I've used the I Ching and mm. I do that in my journal also. And so in some ways that's a spiritual practice, but in a lot of ways I use that as like a counterbalance to um, overthinking decision-making. Mm. Um, and then, and then for me, the interesting thing is that what I notice when I look back at the, um, the I Ching and my different, um, plant medicine or psychedelic, um, experiences, I usually am trying to like answer life questions or decisions with those tools. Um, and I think in some ways that's like a weird way of thinking of spirituality mm. because I think that, um, um, in a lot of ways, spirituality, especially in most cultures around the world, like that aren't industrialized is that it's not really necessarily, it's, it can be a lot more about just like being than about like trying to decide what you're going to do. Mm. Even though a lot of places they do use psychedelics to decide like, where am I going to go hunt tomorrow? <laughs> That's kind of the way that I've used them. <laughs> um, and I also noticed there's a really strong overlap with, um, questions about romantic relationships. And so for me, a lot of times my use of the I Ching, um, and I don't know what like the Chinese sages would think about this, but if I look back at my I Ching, mm -hmm. it's mostly questions about relationships with women and like what <laughs> decisions like I should make. Um, and a lot of my, um, a lot of my psychedelic experiences have been like trying to figure out like, like how to deal with like a relationship that ended or things like that. So, um, it sounds kind of like, you know, when we were talking earlier about the kind of linear logical pros and cons yeah. way of deciding, it sounds kind of like you're farming that out yeah. <laughs> to, this, to this other way. It's like, yeah. yeah, you know, I want, you know, like I want good feedback right. yet, uh, but I don't want to be so like disconnected from myself. That... Yeah. Well, I think on this thing, I wrote something about that because like, it seems like, um, some, a lot of times I end up, uh, like when I have to, like when I have to make, for whatever reason, I feel like decisions about like a romantic relationship, I, it's harder for me to do like a very logical pros and cons thing. It's easier for me to farm it out to the I Ching and just be like, I, I, I give up, you know, give like, me, you give me some insight. Of yeah. What's going on? Um, and, uh. Let's see, what else about spiritual practices? I used to, I, I definitely have tried a lot over the years, like, to pursue different um, spiritual paths and, like, test out different things. And, um, you know, like, I, I've done, like, mindfulness retreats and stuff like that. And it's been hard for me, uh, especially um, recently, to do, like, those kind of, even though I intellectually really believe in it, but, like, practices where it's just, like, I'm every in every moment just trying to be like mindful or like eating mindfully. And I think I'm in this track right now where I'm like definitely a lot more driven. And a lot of times I'm kind of like multitasking or just like really pushing myself. And, um, I have, yeah, it's, uh, spirit, spiritual practices is, is hard for me too, because it feels like, 
in a lot of ways, there's it kind of like my career also is there's not just like here, follow this, like, yeah. Um, this, this, um, trajectory. I'm, I've lately have been really interested in stoicism. Mm -hmm. Um, and, um, I also read this book, essentialism, which in a lot of ways is like stoicism, but that was really good. And, um, yeah, I've been trying to apply a lot of stuff from those philosophies. And just, I really believe that, um, spirituality should, should tell us something about like how to live our life. Um, and not just be something that it's like you do like once a year when you go to Peru and do ayahuasca, <laughs> you know, and then you come back and just do whatever nor you normally yeah. do. I don't think it can really work that way. Yeah. Um, and I think I might, even though I thought that I was like not doing that, I think in some ways that's kind of like how I was doing it too. Mm-hmm. Um, well, yeah. I mean, that is a symptom of our culture. It's like, yeah. it's like distilling, right. um, put it in a pill. Yeah. I mean, exactly. Even if it's not in a pill, but like put it in this, like, yeah. Dosage, this thing that's, that I don't have to like think about yeah. any other day except the time that I do it. Yeah, you yeah. Know, it's like, it takes away the relationship with yourself or yeah. with this, something else. I mean, uh, in my own experience, I've tried a few things and kind of like, I still think that maybe what I'm, part of what I'm thinking about what spirituality is or like what one of the objectives is, is to like have some, um, deeper or grander perspective on life, which, you know, saying doesn't necessarily, you know, I, I believe that, but at the same time, I think another part of it is like something beyond the normal, um, kind of everyday experience. Mm-hmm where, you know, it's like you're working towards achieving this, like, moment of enlightenment or awakening, um, and I, you know, I tend to do this in life, which is, like, you know, make things so grand and so unattainable yeah, that it's hard to, like, take action, or the actions that I do take seem inconsequential in terms of achieving that goal. So, I mean, that's definitely something I, I need to work on, but, like, I think hearing, hearing about what you get out of your, your practice of like understanding your life and yourself more and feeling more connected and more present to, you know, where you're at. I think yeah. that's definitely something, um, that I would look for in a, in a spiritual or, or any kind of practice, regardless of whether you think well, it's spiritual Well, I feel so much better now. <laughs> <laughs> but like, you know, I, I feel like there's also, for me, it's like, ah, oh, you know, I want to achieve the... I'm at the same time, like scared of achieving that thing, but also feel like if I, you know, take, if I start meditating, you know, I'm going to have this like crazy realization and then I'm not going to be the same person anymore. Or, but it's, it's like this weird thing where I'm like, I want that. And, you know, I want to see behind the veil of everyday life, um, and gain like this higher understanding and connection and feeling of connection. But at the same time, that is terrifying because, you know, it seems like what that means is, uh, kind of, kind of having to renounce or like, you know, be disconnected from worldly things. Yeah. So, um, I don't know. It's an interesting, uh, mental, mental gymnastic there, but, um, I don't know. I, I just wondering, like still kind of trying to define what spirituality is. 
and like what that means in my own life. Yeah. Um, I think there's a lot of like instruction on like how to do the things or yeah. like why they improve your brain or yeah. like why meditation is like um, on paper good for you. Yeah. But there's a quality of being, I think, that I, I think ultimately I'm searching for yeah. through something like that, that I don't know that I've found yet, maybe because I've been too critical uh-huh. or um, just haven't found the right thing that works best for me. Yeah. So uh, that's kind of my perspective, uh-huh. but um, huh. yeah, what do you think? Um, well, it's really funny because I, I, I was surprised because I never really thought of when you said that sounds like a spiritual practice and I was just like, Oh, okay. Cause I've been thinking like, Oh, I haven't like when I look at my goals or values and stuff that I've written down, I'm like, Oh, the spirituality and stuff. I haven't really been doing that very much lately, <laughs> but then I, I thought, Oh yeah, that I didn't really, um, um, make that, that connection. Um, well, one of the things you, you said in a recent video mm-hmm. about nature journaling, which is like recording awareness and making meaning from your experience. Right. Which I right. It's really cool. A yeah. Really cool idea. Yeah. Well, I think that I read, um, Victor Frankl's man's search for meaning in the mm-hmm. last like couple months. And that really affected me. I, I think that for a long time I've been interested in meaning mm-hmm. and sort of like that being an underlying and that, that can be problematic because if everybody else is just doing superficial stuff and you're like looking for something else, it can make it hard to fit in with everybody else. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, that book was amazing and, um, I think is so, so key to, to happiness. And he spent all this time in like basically the worst possible situations you can imagine a human being in and he was able to make meaning out of it and and basically question whether that you know like he 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 he, there's a part in there that kind of blew my mind where someone uh shows him a photograph this is after he's not in the concentration camp anymore and someone shows him a photograph of all these skinny guys in a concentration camp and they're like oh gosh that looks horrible or whatever and he's like Actually, no, not necessarily. He like totally questioned the assumption that those guys are having a terrible experience. Mm. And um, I was just kind of like, if you haven't been in a concentration camp, you can't get away with saying that. But since he right. has, it's kind of like mind blowing. Um, but yeah, I think that part, the looking for meaning. Um, yeah, I guess that is all a spiritual practice. Um, but yeah, I think I've basically in my mind kind of compartmentalized spiritual spiritual practices or spirituality into like going out in nature um, and having or like having some kind of shamanic like uh, facilitated experience with psychedelics or um, yeah, mostly I think of nature and psychedelics as spirituality. <laughs> Well, like, what are the elements of those, you know, that, uh, that make, that seem Connection spiritual? to something bigger than myself. Uh-huh. Yeah. Or also just, yeah, getting beyond, I think psychedelics allow f- the possibility of like being outside of yourself or seeing things in a different way and, um, not being so tied up with the ego. And then mm-hmm. I think being in nature also can help you realize like that you're small Mm -hmm. yeah 
that's cool. Yeah. You know, I, uh, you know, I thought of something when you said, kind of quoted that, uh, Victor Frankl mm-hmm. about seeing people and seeing and like understanding that, or, or not just assuming that they're having yeah. a, a terrible experience. I mean, I think it can go the other way, mm. like in our culture about mm. just the, the over emphasis on fame and yeah. wealth and like external exactly. definition of success yeah. or attainment or achievement yeah, yeah. and thinking that that will make you happy. <laughs> it's like, it works the other way too. It's like, yeah, yeah. Okay. But does that really, is that really fulfilling? Yeah. You know, is that really truly what you want? Yeah. That's you know? a huge problem because everybody's all these like kids and stuff are looking at those people, kids and adults that are looking at those people and they're like, Oh my God, I want that. I want that. I want that. That person's probably, and just assuming that those people are happy. But yeah, some of those people are uh, probably suffering really badly. Yeah. Or, or, and also just suffering doesn't have any limits or boundaries. Right. It's like, yeah, you know, that's a, that's kind of like a, the nature of being human. Yeah, exactly. It doesn't mean that just because you've, Right. some level that you're immune to that right yeah it's like that human beings are the only animal that can make a heaven out of hell or hell <laughs> out of heaven so yeah well yeah i mean that that's interesting that makes me kind of think back to nature also and like you know um i was in new york last year and kind of a this interesting gathering of um and there was a presentation from the local indigenous people mm-hmm. who are the mohawk people um and the guy, one of the things he said was he's talking about like how deer, um, and other animals don't feel, or they're not as affected by like cold or extreme temperature changes like we are, you know, it's like in the wintertime, it's like, we want to put on tons of layers and, but animals were the same thing. They're at the same state all year round. And he was saying that that's because of the way that they think. It's like, they don't, they're just kind of in the present and like, um, the way that they think shapes their experience basically. And if we were able to do that, that we could potentially experience something similar or, but that to me just makes me think of like, again, being present and not being so focused on the the external reality and being more focused on, um, the internal one. Yeah. Which I think is always fascinating to like hear about different perspectives in that way. Yeah. Um, so another, another kind of uh, topic we haven't quite touched on, which mm-hmm. I'm curious about is like, you know, when the inevitable challenges and fear and insecurity come up, um, especially as it regards to, uh, your practice and mm-hmm. uh, moving towards your goal, mm-hmm. um, and your vision for yourself, like how does, um, doing your practice influence that, or is there anything that you do? Um, to get back into kind of the state that you feel most creative or, mm-hmm. you know, centered. Um, could you define like challenges a little bit? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think, I think it could be anything. I mean, I think, um, you know, having something like you were saying earlier, financially fall through. Yeah. And so you're, you know, that can be a huge stress or, um, interpersonal right. connections with people or, or even like something I go through, which is kind of like, um, I don't know, losing momentum or I tend to like fall into anxiety or, um, depression sometimes. And like that, 
you know, I know that that's not a, a permanent thing, but um, that definitely becomes self-defeating because then the things that lift me up, I have a hard time doing those things again. Sure. And so then it's like, keeps me there longer. Yeah. Um, so. Okay. Yeah, yeah I got so. it. So I have three, three challenging things this, um, this like summer and fall. Um, one being the end of a, um, intimate relationship. That was like the best relationship that I've, um, ever had. And, um, then I had, um, surgery on my wrist and I'm right-handed. I'm, I'm like 65% ambidextrous, but, um, basically that brought up a lot of questions about, even though I'm that much ambidextrous, it's like, you can't type typing with one hand or (laughs) there's a lot of things in my work that require my hands. Mm -hmm. So that brought up a lot of questions about like being able to do my work and then the, the, all the, the financial stuff. So those three things sort of combine to really create like the potential for a lot of like uncertainty and worry and, um, challenges this year for me. And I think, um, definitely having a regular practice that you do every single day will help with all of the, will automatically, it doesn't even matter what the practice really is. It will help. And then journaling in particular really helps. And I do like, one of the things I do in my journal every day is a gratitude practice. And so having a gratitude practice is really useful because you can always, there's always something that you can be grateful for. And it's kind of like one of those things like meditation, there's studies now about like how doing gratitude is super helpful. And there's a ton of little like tactical things like that, that are possible. Um, For me, some other really useful things are having um, a couple people that I know that I can talk to um, when things are difficult. And I actually have a life coach person that I talk to um, right now. I talk to them once a month. Um, for an hour. And then I have people who are like friends that I know are good with. Like I have one friend who, um, she's a little bit older than me and she, um, is really good to talk to about like emotional or relationship stuff. And whenever I'm dealing with stuff like that, I talk to her and that's super useful. Um, what else? Um, I think for like the, the, the relationship that ended was, that was definitely like way more challenging, I think, than the other two. And it actually like ha- has, the, I feel like our life in some ways is like a stool with like, I kind of think of it as like three legs. One is um, like relationship. Like usually I think of it as like an intimate, in our, in our culture, it kind of, a, a lot of emphasis ends up getting put on like an intimate or romantic relationship that in some other cultures would be more dispersed with other like family members and stuff like that. Mm. But that relationship is sort of like one leg. And then um, where I live is another leg. And then, um, and that includes, that can include community aspects in it also. Uh, And then um, like my life's work is, or work is the third leg. And so if one of those things gets sort of, wobbly Mm -hmm. then it's usually okay but i've noticed that like um if you have multiples of those that are either made wobbly by an external event or you're you start questioning maybe changing one out then 
it's really hard if you have multiple of those things going at the same time. And so, um, that can be really, um, destabilizing and difficult. And so that's one thing. So like, ideally, if you have any choice about it, not starting to not intentionally like pulling multiples of those out at the same time. Mm. Um, and then another thing is just, um, that can be really useful that I've used is just, just being like, um, I, I seriously didn't really know. I thought I knew what like self love was before. (laughs) And in where I live in Sebastopol, people talk about that kind of shit all the time. Mm -hmm. And it's really easy to think like, you know, like you can use that expression in complete sentences, but that doesn't mean like, you know what that actually means or how to practice it. And I think that I had some major realizations about that, um, since breaking up in this relationship Um, and then I've also just another thing that is just, that's a personal part, but then going back to things that are actionable for a lot of people is just being like compassionate or loving of yourself also can mean realizing that when you're dealing with something like that, you can get in a chemical state in your brain that, that can end up like questioning a lot of other things in your life. And what you have to be able to remind yourself is that you're not set up really for success at that, that point and, and to be easy on yourself and to sort of, um, take everything with a grain of salt. Because like, if you just, if you're in a really difficult emotional state, the chemistry in your brain is going to make it hard to be positive about anything else. And so if you start like questioning everything in your life, like you just be aware that you might just be in that state and then to try to do other things. Like, I think that's a really important thing to understand in general is that you might not be making good decisions or doing good work, not because you're not smart or whatever, but it could just be because you're not set up chemically right now for that. And so having practices that set you up chemically. So like your morning routine should include stuff that sets you up chemically. And so like, if you're hung over from the night before, you should realize that's going to affect your ability to do work in the morning or think positively or whatever. And so also in the same way, like just understanding, you know, like how, what role exercise or diet plays and trying to do everything else that you can to support yourself when you're dealing with a challenge is super important because um, otherwise you can't, it's like you wouldn't try to drive your car if it didn't have gas in it, you know? And Mm. so it's like, you can't have really high expectations of yourself if you're not setting yourself up for success in those kind of basic physiological ways. Um, And then, yeah, it's just like being able to externalize your own thinking and feelings when you're in that state is super useful. And I think that's where the journaling can play a huge role because you can get caught up in the story and like identifying yourself with those emotions and that can turn into this like downward spiral. And um, if you can journal and sort of put that, get that stuff out of your, of your head, then you can, um, 
be a little bit more like a, a little bit more objective about it. And that's, um, that's super useful. Um, let's see, I, there's some more stuff here. Um, yeah. And, and, and that's where checking in with other people can be good and seeing just like when you talk to other people that can really help be grounding. Um, yeah, those are sort of some of the main things that, um, come to mind for, uh, dealing with, uh, challenges right now. Yeah. Cool. Um, I, I mean, I really relate to this now more than ever just because I would in the past, like really identify with whatever emotional state I was in. Yeah. And now I feel like, you know, it's like not me so much. Yeah. It's like my body is going through something right yeah, now yeah. or like you know, my emotional state is in a certain place right now, but like, that's, that doesn't really mean that I'm a bad person or, um, I'm a failure or like any negative label you can put on yourself or like, that's, that's you identifying with that thing or that state, but it's really just, um, you know, it's not a permanent thing. It's not like who you are because we're always flowing and changing. Um, Yeah. So to be, be gentle, um, I think super helpful. Yeah. Like it's not, not so easy to do, but yeah. <laughs> that's. Oh, that's the other thing that I didn't mention is that, um, I did a ton of dancing. Like, um, after this, after this relationship ended, I was going, um, social dancing like three nights a week, uh, mostly salsa and bachata, but like that really helped. And I think that's just a chemical thing in a lot of ways too, is just, um, yeah, just if you can find it. And sometimes you have to be careful with this too, because like, I also was like drinking a lot. Mm. Um, and, and those things can kind of be connected. It's like the place where I go dancing, there's drinking happening too, Mm -hmm. but like being able to dance and just have like these sort of like carefree moments and, and remembering that like dancing was something that I liked doing before. Um, and it's something that allows for me to, um, interact in an intimate, a physically intimate way with a lot of different women who I'm not in like a relation, intimate relationship with was like a really helpful way to just be like, okay, like I'm fine. I'm okay. You know, Mm. like, um, and, uh, and it also was because like when an into when a relate one of those relate like we put so much pressure on our intimate relationships because like you could parse out all the different things that we are asking for and in our society it's kind of unrealistic um but if you can figure out like when that relationship ends it's like all of a sudden like your main the main emotional per- usually like our our partners are like the person that we um, share our most emotions with, a person who's um, we're physically intimate with and get like our sexual needs met by, um, and hopefully like kind of in some ways like our best friend mm-hmm. and someone who we like sharing domestic type stuff with or mm-hmm. eating with and stuff like that. And it's like you all of a sudden take all of those things away at the same time. That can be like really difficult. So yeah. for me, like I realized that some of those things I could still get somewhere else, at least to some degree and trying to take care of some of those if you can, instead of just like going cold Turkey and all of a sudden not having any of those can be, um, can be, um, hard. 
Yeah. That's really helpful. Yeah. Um, it seems like a lot of what we've been talking about is like kind of uh, subverting the ego in some way or like yeah. subverting that voice in your head that yeah. tries to convince you of some story or yeah. <clears throat> why not to do something. Yeah. And, you know, whether it's making a habit, making it easy yeah. or like going to, going to do something that's fun that kind of gets you out of yeah. you know, the story that you would marinate in at yeah. home. Um, yeah. And kind of like just bust out of the shell that you yeah. always are constantly creating for yourself. Yeah. And uh, like externalize that, like put it either put it on paper yeah. or interact with somebody. So you're right. not thinking about it. Um, it seems like a theme yeah. that we've talked about a bunch here. Yeah. You know, one other question I would yeah. ask is uh, what's something that you would really want to teach others, pass on to your children or leave for the world? you know, this nugget of wisdom, whatever it might be. Or, you know, going back to the being on your deathbed and, like, yeah. you know, what's important to you about your life that is, like, a good um, kind of tenet to live by. Yeah. Well, I, I, I really believe in that whole um, the unexamined life is not worth living. Mm-hmm. Um, going back to sort of like Greek philosophy, which for them philosophy was like how to live a good life. And um, I think, yeah, if I could sum up, um, I mean, part of me first starts like, I start thinking of all these different more specific things. Mm-hmm. But I think the most important thing is just making your life what you want or making your life sort of like your main work of art and Mm. instead of like doing a bunch of different things or um worrying about like making money or whatever achieving different things like just making your life into like trying to live in the way that um that you want and that allows you to be yourself and do like the things that you need to do is the most important thing. Um, yeah. So just figuring out like what, what it means for you to live a good life Mm -hmm. and just going, going for that. Important stuff. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Cool, man. Well, I feel like we could just keep going forever on all these things, but maybe we can, do more later. Great, sure. Right. I think now's probably a good time to cool. Press pause and eat some eat food. Some food. <laughs> cool, man. Anyway, thanks so much. Yeah. It's really been awesome. Great. Thanks so much for listening. Before we go, I'd like to recap a couple of things that stood out to me. Marley mentioned about being able to judge our success or fulfillment from the end of our life, but I would like to add that we can look from that perspective now. So can you imagine what it would be like before you die and look back on where you are now and ask yourself, what do I want to spend time on? What do I value? What am I willing to try now that might be scary? He also talked about the three-legged stool, relationship, community, life's work, and how difficult it can be if more than one of those is destabilized or uncertain in your life. This is an incredibly important part of life that we don't think about often enough. And when we go through hard times, We tend to take things personally, feel bad about ourselves, or blame others, rather than see the bigger context of how we aren't supported to make good decisions or be at our best. It's important for me to show people and process on this podcast. 
not to make it seem like when you achieve some high goal that you're perfect or you don't still struggle. To me, Marley is success in progress. I look up to him because he practices great discipline and commitment to his craft, and I wanted to show what healthy habits and mindset look like before so-called achievement. It's important to see someone on the road to achieving their goals so we can see what they are working on, struggling with, what they're good at, and not just see the end result. But hopefully the habits and skills that we build in the process continue to develop to keep us centered and in the zone as much as possible. The support structure like habits and routines that we build for ourselves are just as important as the thing it is we're trying to be successful at. Thanks so much again for listening, and I hope you'll join me again next time. 